We pause now to remember our Lord's faithfulness in providing logistical grace. We also have a chance to show our gratitude through giving, not from compulsion, but as unto the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. See in our bulletin that we're going to have our uh, communion service Sunday after next. And uh, you can see Mary Morgan to uh, take care of uh, signing up for that. Mary, raise your hand. Everybody knows Mary, but just in case. <laughs> <laughs> You're that popular, see. Also, we hope to have the dedication service for our new junior class and nursery and toddlers class. We're having a bit of, a, a, as the British would say, a spot of bother <laughs> with putting the carpet down, and hopefully that will be done and all will be well. Uh, let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your mighty word, for giving us the grace to be here, to understand what is going to be taught because of the great system of perception. We thank you for everything that you have done in order for us to grow up spiritually, to execute the Christian way of life, and to be able to glorify you. So we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Have a few, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a few things to say uh, to your fa to you fathers. You know, the glue that holds society together is the family, and the glue that holds the family together is the father, or at least it should be that way. For the most part, we have become a matriarchal society. And that's, not, that's unfortunate because that's not the way that God has designed it. Uh, everywhere you look, you see uh, fathers um, not stepping up to the plate and assuming the role that God has designed for them. You know, it's not hard to become a father. That would be normally. In other words, it's not that difficult for guys to create babies. Sometimes their men become fathers through adoption. Uh, sometimes they uh, inherit children when they marry someone that has uh, children from a previous marriage. Uh, that makes it all the more difficult. However, what is really difficult is being a good father used to be a commercial on TV. The Marines would have it on and said, we need a few good men. Well, this nation needs a lot of good fathers. And that's what my call is today is for essentially fathers to step up to the plate to be the father that God has called them to be. It's hard to be a good father these days because everywhere you turn, fathers as well as husbands, are ridiculed and belittled. It's been going on for so long now that a lot of men feel intimidated by all of this. And we, we need to remember that we are called on to be the leader in our home. It's not something that you have a choice in. When you said, I do... You did. You did become the leader of your household, at least in that position. And 
We desperately need good fathers today. We have a lot of fathers. We have a lot of absentee fathers. It's a hard job. And you ladies, you wives especially, can help along with the task. I'll give you, I know this is Father's Day, but I'm going to talk to the ladies for just a moment. First of all, you want to treat your husband with respect. Now, you can, you can treat someone with respect even if you don't like them. And there are going to be times in your marriage that you don't like your husband. You're not called on to necessarily like him or even love him. But you are called on to respect him. And so you can enhance the, um, the stability of the family by doing a few things. And if you want to take notes, this is the time to get your pencil out. First of all, you don't want to correct your husband or overrule him, especially in front of others. He's the leader. He's in charge. And you want to treat him in such a manner. And I see it happen all the time. A father will be saying, Well, I remember last September when we went on vacation. And the wife is right there. Uh, it wasn't September. It was August. Is it really that important? Is it worth uh, correcting someone that is, it, it, it just belittles him and it's not necessary? Now, sometimes it may, may be necessary, but most of the time it isn't. Second thing is you don't want to give him orders or in any way uh, to talk down to him. Many of you ladies have been employed in the past. Would you go in and start giving your boss orders? Would you go in and start telling him the way that things ought to be run and calling him down for little miscellaneous things? I think not. The husband has that type of authority. You need to remember that. You need to encourage him when he makes mistakes and not criticize him. The perfect husband and the perfect father is yet to be born. No such thing. So we're going to make mistakes. When we make mistakes, rather than rubbing our nose in it, rather than criticizing us, it will go a long way if we get a little bit of encouragement. Because after all, the stability of the family is dependent upon the father being in charge and the rest of the family respecting him. It's so important. Even the stability of a nation depends on that as well. Now, fathers, you are to be teaching your children. You not only teach them the things they need to know in order to grow up and be a good contributing an adult in society, but you are to teach them spiritual things as well. You are called on to be the spiritual head of the family. And you don't put that off on the church, the pastor, the young people, class, the nursery, or anywhere else. You take charge of that. I think... Young people, children, need to see their fathers pray. They need to see it. They need to hear it. I know my daughter uh, always saw me pray, especially before a meal. And it was years later that uh, I was at a, a gathering, and I got in late, and it was at her house, and uh, they were about to have a meal, and she didn't even know I was there. I came in and just about to enter the room when she started praying. And it, it really struck me. Her prayer sounded exactly like my prayer. And it was, it, it was somewhat easy for her to do that because she saw her father pray. 
I know it's cute for children to pray uh, before a meal, and nothing wrong with that. But I think after the child prays, if she if they want to pray, I think the father needs to take charge and give thanks to the Lord in front of everyone because it's a sign of humility, showing the chain of command. Everything is good about that. You know, we have today things set in place that really encourages absentee fathers. Everywhere you look, there are families where fathers are absent. There's programs like the AD, let's see, what is it? It's the AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. This is a government program. And they will give money to a person, to a woman, on two conditions. First of all, she can't have a father at home and she can't have a job. Now, when you're going to throw money at people who don't have a father at home and they don't have a job, what are you going to get more of? You know what you're going to have more of. Uh, unfortunately, it, there's so many things against uh, fathers and the family these days, but we are still required before the Lord to do what we're uh, called to do. You know, your children need uh, discipline, and they need praise when it is due. You don't want to shy away from either one. Sometimes there are fathers who are lax on the discipline and heavy on the praise. And then, of course, sometimes there are those who are just the opposite. We need to give them both when it is due. Discipline, absolutely. Called on to do it. But praise. You should seek after praise more than discipline. The, disp the discipline is going to be in your face. You don't have to go looking for that uh, times when you need to discipline. But you may, be, you, you may have to be fairly vigilant in looking for reasons to praise. But that's just as important. And we are to always love our children. We are always to spend time with our children. Fathers find that hard to do sometimes. But it's absolutely imperative to do. You know, I had such a, a wonderful example as a father. Uh, I just, I can't relate to people who don't look at their father as uh, Superman and uh, Roy Rogers and all the heroes rolled up in one. When I was in Little League baseball, I was in Little League baseball and football and all these type of things, and uh, more times than not, my dad was the coach. When I got home from school, I was wanting to be a pitcher. I mean, this is, I can remember, I don't remember what grade it was, but I wanted to be a pitcher so bad I could taste it. And, but I needed someone to, to play catch with me so I could practice my pitching. My dad was a plumber. He worked hard. I'm talking about physically hard. And he would get home late and he would drag into the house. And here I am bouncing off the walls. Can we play catch, Daddy? Let's play catch. Can we? <laughs> now I look back on that and I can see how hard that was for him to do. But he would go out there dead tired and spend time with me uh, playing pitch. Now that might not seem like a big thing. I look back and that's one of the huge things. He took me hunting. He took me fishing. He sh told me and taught me how to do things that were needed for me to grow into a man. And my respect for him is boundless. He, I, and, I, and so I, have, I had an advantage, but many, many people, many children don't have that advantage. So, again, this is a call for the dads to do what they are, are called on to do. You know, sometimes um, things are not as they should be in the family. And habits are hard to break. I understand that. But it is the father's duty to make changes when changes are necessary. Too many fathers have just retreated into the shadows and let things go awry. 
and when things are really out of kilter, when your family gets to the point to where it's dysfunctional, it's, it's difficult to get a handle on it, but it can be done. And the fathers need to change, make the changes in their homes that need to be made. And the way they do it is they start with themselves. First of all, they have to be someone that recognizes that they are responsible to the Lord for their families. They have to realize that the first thing they have to put in order is their relationship with God. And fathers that are out there who think that all is well on that front, if their family is a mess, then all is not well. So you, you make sure that your relationship with the Lord is right, and then you, you can be firm and loving at the same time. And sometimes it's a, it's a hard thing to do, but I can guarantee you that it's worth it, and the Lord will bless you for it. Now, this may not be the typical Father's Day address that you may have expected, but I think today families are in a crisis situation. I, there's hardly anywhere that I can look in any area where it doesn't seem like there's a crisis and there's misunderstanding and the world, the flesh, of the, and the devil is pressing in and trying to, to essentially emasculate fathers. And this is an encouragement to you to be the father that God has called you to be. Okay. I'm done with fathers now. Take your Bibles and open to Joshua. The book of Joshua. Oh, there's something that I forgot before we leave, fathers. <laughs> I forgot I had this. You know, sometimes, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. I've had this for quite a while, and I show it every time I can remember on Father's Day. I'll just let you look at it. You have the teenage girl there, and she has a, a boom box with the earphones in her ears. That shows how old this is. I mean, boom boxes have been out for quite a while. It's iPods now. You have a little child there with a remote pushing it, uh, aiming it at the TV, and he's saying, Daddy. And the caption says, America's new two-parent family. This, this is tragic, and yet this is the case so many times today. This is a quote by Phyllis Shafley. I have said over and over again for years, if you won't, or can't offer your child for self, of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, offer yourself and time. Don't make a baby. Get a parakeet. You can always throw a towel over the cage, and quiet it when you're busy or just not interested. Phyllis Shafley, I, I like to see her articles. She was on TV at one time, but she said something uh, that was derogatory about homosexuality and they kicked her off the air. Several have met that same fate. But she essentially, every time she was on the air, would say, if you can't take care of babies, don't make them. Don't have children if you can't put in the time and the effort to give them a responsible home. So, <clears throat> anyway... I forgot I had that. Now, in Joshua chapter 7, we have gone through essentially the whole thing, except there are a few things that I was going to address here at the end. And it has to do with loyalty. That would be, <coughs> excuse me, loyalty to a family. We have 
We have so many times uh, that we look at our family and we think, well, we are to be uh, loyal, and that is absolutely the case. However, uh, loyalty can go only so far with regards to any anything, whether it's people or family or whoever it may be. The reason we're talking about this is because in chapter 7 we had a man by the name of Achan. His name in Hebrew meant trouble. And boy, did he bring trouble on himself, the nation, and his family. And at the end of uh, chapter 7, God tells Joshua to take Achan, who... I guess I should digress for a moment. God had put a ban on Jericho. He says, you don't take anything from there. No gold, no silver, no anything. Everything in it is to die. This is the first fruits. Everything is going to be offered up to me. Achan ignored that. He went in and took some gold and silver and a, a nice wardrobe and so forth, hid it under his tent, and the whole nation was going to suffer for it. They went to battle against Ai and were decisively defeated and they were undone. Joshua thought, what, what in the world has happened? There's something drastically wrong. And God pointed to the fact that there was sin among them and they were to uh, sort it out and they found it was Achan. And then here's where we're getting to where we're going to get to the loyalty part. Achan and his entire family were to be executed. And that's where some people have a problem. I can understand Achan being executed, but why was his family also ordered to be executed? And that's what we're addressing here because this is the last uh, few points I'm going to make from uh, chapter 7. And that is... <coughs> excuse me. In order to understand this, we're going to turn to the book of Acts. Put a bookmark in Joshua chapter 7 and turn to Acts. The book of Acts. Acts chapter <coughs> 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, what we're going to look at is an account in the New Testament that parallels something that we see in Joshua chapter 7. You see, God was making a point in Joshua chapter 7. They had just entered the land. They had taken the first city. And he is, he is emphasizing that when he says something, they are to obey it. And there are dire consequences if you do not obey it. And Achan was really made an example. Now, we're in Acts chapter 5, we have a new dispensation that has started. And again, God is going to make an example of those who would uh, disobey to him, in this case, lie. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife, look at this, full knowledge... She knew, full knowledge, and, a, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Anything wrong with that? Of course not. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Now, what is that? What, what precedes this is there were people who were bringing everything they had and, and giving it to uh, the church. And this is what Ananias had supposedly done. He had represented that he had given everything, the full price of the land uh, to the apostle to support uh, that effort, uh, when really he didn't. He had kept some back for himself. And as you see in verse uh, 2, his wife had full knowledge of that. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Uh, Ananias had approbation lust. He wanted people to think highly of him. And so he was just going to do something deceitful in order to accomplish that. Verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And the great fear came upon all who heard of it. So this is, this is accomplishing what God wanted. Uh, he is explaining that they have to be honest and forthright with him. Verse 6. And the young man arose and covered him. And after carrying him out, they buried him. So he's carried away from the house. He's buried. Verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. Now, again, what's, what's happening here is she is complicit in covering up deception. She is part of this. Now, when he asked about the price, the full price, see, did you notice that, the full price? She's alleging that it's the full price when it was not. And so she is party to this. And, what's, and, and what happens, we see, uh, and she fell, verse 10, and she immediately fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young woman came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Same thing is going to happen now in, that we're looking at in, in Joshua uh, when you take a person and his family, everything he had was going to be destroyed. They were stoned to death and then they were burned. This sounds pretty harsh, and I guess it is harsh, but it was done for a purpose because there was a point in this, and that was to send a message loud and clear to the entire congregation that you don't want to mess around with God. It's not worth it. And then the same thing now in a new dispensation, you have two people who are going to uh, pay the ultimate price for de deceiving and not dealing forthrightly with God, and the news gets out. So that's one of the things that you need to keep in mind when we're looking at this account where the family is going to pay. Both were ju judged, even though it was the man's property. Uh, he held back some of the profit. Uh, but she lied as well as he did. She was wrong to cover up her husband, uh, cover for her husband, or to go along with him. In this case, she followed her husband. She went against the Lord. Now, normally, wives are to obey their husbands, and they are to be submissive to them. But there are extenuating circumstances and any time a husband, indeed any authority, tells you something that would be contrary to what God would have you do, that's when your loyalty and your submission to them must end. And she paid the price because she didn't recognize that. You see, when it comes to loyalty... Our loyalty must be to God first and then to everyone else after that that has legitimate delegated authority over us. But when that delegated authority goes off, goes off track, your loyalty is to God. Now this is not easy and it's not pleasant to deal with, but it's something that we have to recognize. There are families that when something happens, uh, there is a danger. There's something that they circle the wagons. And that's a good thing. That's fine. As long as there isn't someone in there who has committed a crime, has committed something that offended God, some particular sin or whatever, in that case, uh, you don't go along with that to try to 
cover it up because then you become complicit. You become a party to that and the guilt of that party is on you as well. When we side with someone who is wrong, then we are wrong also and come into judgment. We see this principle in the Mosaic Law. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now this is going to be harsh. It's going to be tough for you to swallow, but it's part of the Word of God and we have to deal with it. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall not follow, excuse me, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments and listen to His voice, serve Him and cling to Him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord. The Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, now notice this is even if he prophesies or dreams a dream and it comes to pass. So even if there are miracles involved, if anything is done and it goes against the Word of God, then you know it's counter, it's anti-God, and you're not to uh, follow those. Verse 6. Now we're getting to the family part. If your brother or your mother's son or your son or your daughter or the wife you cherish or your friend who is as your own soul... Now, all of this is, telling, is explaining to you, these are people, not strangers, but people who are very close to you, your closest friend, even your own family and your wife who you cherish. It says, if they entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the prophets who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one, of the, from one of the earth to the other. In other words, it doesn't matter who they are trying to entice you away from the Lord, away from His Word into someone else. Verse 8, this is where it starts getting a bit uh, sticky. You shall not yield to Him or listen to Him, and your eyes shall not pity Him, nor shall you spare or conceal Him. But you shall surely kill Him with your hand, uh, uh, kill him, your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Now, what is this isn't saying that when someone would try to entice you to other gods away from God and his word that, you, that you're going to kill them on the spot. The mode of execution was stoning to death, and what this is instructing is that when it has been, uh, when it's, this person has been accused, the facts have been presented, and he's been found guilty of trying to uh, persuade you to live the living God and to go to false gods, then you were to be the first one to throw the stone when they executed him, when they, when, when they were to be stoned. Verse 10, So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the uh, house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. So again, God is making a point. It's very harsh. And of course, this is something that would be exceedingly difficult to do, but they were required under the Mosaic law to do this. If they did not do it, what would happen? If they concealed this or if they became a party to it, what would happen to them? 
they would be executed as well. It, you didn't have any choice. You didn't have any latitude. You either did the right thing or you could pay with your life. That was under the Mosaic Law. And the people heard it. And this was going to cut down on those who would be trying to seduce you away from the living, living God. Now, I want you to note one other thing before we leave this verse. It didn't say if they went to seek other gods. It says if they tried to seduce you. So if they had a family member or some or friend, whatever they may be, and they decided to seek other gods, then that's between them and the Lord. And they would, they, you would not be held accountable as far as this is concerned unless they tried to seduce you to follow them. Did you notice that in there? That was part of the Mosaic Law. Now, you may be at this point being, you may be thankful that we don't live under the Mosaic Law. I am exceedingly grateful that we are not under the Mosaic Law because we have, uh, we're, in the, we're in the age of grace. Uh, we have so many spiritual assets that they did not have. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have so many things that they didn't have. And we don't have to walk just so-so. And if you vary, it could mean your, your death. But we still have something that is similar to this as far as dealing with family members or whoever it may be that would influence you to depart from the Word of God. And you can turn to... 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. It just so happens that that's where I've been teaching on Tuesdays and Thursday night is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Now, this, is, this isn't near as harsh as what they had under the Mosaic Law. But it's still not something uh, that is pleasant, but it's something that we are required to do. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet not, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So again, when we have someone that, is, that would lead us away from the truth of God's Word, anytime when they are not obeying the instructions that were in that letter, when you have a friend, a family member, whoever it may be, you have to separate from them. Now, there is mental separation, which we had addressed, and there's also physical separation. If you don't do this, guess what happens? Then you are the one that is being disobedient from the Lord and you are the one that is setting yourself up for divine discipline. So you don't have a choice either. I mean, you have a choice, but when you make the wrong choice, then the discipline is going to fall on you as well. And this is so important these days because we have such a lax society hardly anyone is held accountable and you know that a person where it shows up the most is when some uh, homosexual or lesbian comes out of the closet comes out from under a rock wherever they're coming from and they announce that they are that these days they say they're gay well they just ruined a, a wonderful word when they say they're gay I, we used to say we had a gay old time you don't hear that anymore do you because Language changes, and that might be taken the wrong way now. But what happens is everybody wants to embrace them. Parents, family members, all. Oh, well, they, they, this is just an alternative lifestyle, and we love them anyway. And so society has put a stamp of approval on it. And if you have someone in your family, some friend, some associate, and this is the case, then you have to look at Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, and decide, am I going to do this or am I not? Because it's not easy to do to separate from someone. But if you don't, we even as a church body have to, have to do that. We went to Matthew chapter 18 
and saw that. If you don't do it, it's the same as putting your stamp of approval on it and they don't see the harm in it. They don't see the danger in it. And God does not put up with that kind of behavior. So this is tantamount to not condoning what God does not condone. And we can't put loyalty above obedience to God, can we? Jonathan was King David's best friend. I mean, it says that they were like this. Extremely close. Jonathan was the heir apparent. He was the eldest son of King Saul. And he had already told David, Look, I am not going to contend with you in any way. God has anointed you to be the next king, and I'm not going to stand in your way. That showed how great integrity that Jonathan had. But he was blinded by loyalty to a father who was, for all intents and purposes, insane. He chased David all over the country trying to murder David. And rather than separate from King Saul, he stayed with him with blind allegiance. doesn't matter what he did. He's still my father. And what happened because of that was King Saul died to sin unto death on Mount Gilboa with a belly full of arrows. And Jonathan, his son, died with him. That was so unfortunate because had Jonathan made the right... If he had discerned, if he had done the right thing and discerned that loyalty to God comes before loyalty to family, he could have been phenomenal number two under David. He could have been David's right-hand man, but because he didn't see this point that I'm teaching you this morning, he played a, a horrible price. The Word must always come first. It comes before husband. It, becomes, it comes before wife. It comes before children. It comes before government. It comes before church. It comes before everything. So if anybody or anything gets off track, if they are no longer in accord with God, then we must give our loyalty to God first and obey Him and have allegiance to Him first. And this is hard. Let me tell you, I understand this is difficult because under normal circumstances, we are obliged to submit to authority. When you are part of an organization and all is going well, we are to to really appreciate that. But it only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And when God tells us this is what we must do, we must do it. Now, I'll caution you with this one thing. Don't be looking for reasons to buck authority. Don't be going around trying to stretch this beyond uh, what it is meant to be. That's not what God had in mind. So it wasn't the, until the sin problem was dealt with that God was going to get back on track with the people. His anger was turned away. And the people had to learn Galatians 6, 7. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this also will he reap. The whole point is, in chapter 7, indeed the entire Bible, is that God is faithful. He is faithful. Remember, we taught, uh, I taught you that He is faithful in His cursings as well as His blessings. We went to Deuteronomy chapter 28. 28. We went to uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 16. What did we find there? If you will do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I'm going to curse you. We all want the blessings. We want to depend on these blessings, but we don't want to remember the cursing. This is a reminder. Uh, God is not mocked. You can't play games with God. And if someone starts going off course, you better put your loyalty and your allegiance and your obedience towards God or else you're going to pay the consequences. One more verse. God is faithful in all that I've said. But he's also faithful to forgive our sins when we confess them, isn't he? 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is trying to teach us that He is faithful. He will do what He says He's going to do. And when someone gets out of kilter with Him, we don't want to side with them. We want to do what is ever necessary, even if it's to separate from them, because if we don't, He's going to hold us accountable. Now, turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. That took much longer than I thought it was going to take. It usually does. You may have noticed that in um, chapter 7, just look at just one second, turn back to the first verse of chapter 7. But the sons of Israel, but, you notice that it started with a but? And I told you, that's a big but. <laughs> Nobody likes big butts. Why are y'all laughing? <laughs> and the whole, that whole chapter was a disaster. Look at verse 8. Oh, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Now we're getting back on track. Why? Because Joshua obeyed God. He dealt with the Achan problem, the sin that was amongst them. The entire family, everything was, was dealt with. And now things are back in, on track. Remember in chapter 7, Joshua didn't even consult God when he had a small force go up to Ai and they were decisively defeated. And then he got on his knees from the morning to the way hours and he was pleading to God. He had that pathetic prayer that we went over. But God had said, get up. And he is setting everything straight now. They carried out the mandates of God now. I don't know, with all that in mind, when we see verse 8 and it starts out by saying, now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. It's just like a breath of fresh air. It's like, okay, we went through this dark time and now everything is back on track and God is talking to uh, Joshua again. In fact, this, the, the book of Joshua for the most part is presented in, uh, the, the history is presented in triplet form. Triplet form, this is what I'm talking about. There is a pattern that you'll see throughout the book. First of all, it will tell you what the Lord said. Then it will say what Joshua says to the people. And then it will say what the people do. They carry it out. You got that? That's the pattern. You can go through this book and you'll see it. First the Lord talks to Joshua. Joshua talks to the people. And then the people carry out what Joshua says. But in chapter 7, that, that triplet pattern was broken. Because Joshua didn't wait on the Lord. He thought he could handle this by himself. He took off to Ai. There wasn't what the Lord said and what Joshua said and what the people did. It just started out with what Joshua said. And so now we're going to have it back in triplet form here again. God is speaking. That cycle is now reestablished with now the Lord said to Joshua. Let's look at it. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people with you and arise, go up to Ai. I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Now what we see from this is that God is going to give Ai to Joshua just like he gave Jericho. Remember when he met? Where was the last time that Joshua heard this This same type of thing, it was when he was out and about and there was what appeared to be an angel with a drawn sword standing in front of him. And Joshua said, are you for us or against us? And, jo and Joshua found out that the one he was speaking to was higher in rank than he was. It was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm going to give you the king of Jericho and I'm going to give you all of this. You see what's happened is that now the perspective is going to be corrected. 
Joshua thought, oh, Ai is just a small town. We can take care of that. We'll just go over there and we'll, it, we'll, we'll just dispense, on that, uh, dispense with that easily. We don't even have to take a big, large number of troops, just a, just a few. And what happened? Wham! They got decisively defeated. And now the Lord is telling him, I'm going to give you Ai. You tried it on your own. You saw what happened. So it's just everything is back as it should be. God is in control. He's telling uh, Joshua uh, what's going to happen. Have you ever had that attitude? It's a very dangerous attitude of essentially, we don't say it out loud, but in our minds sometimes we do this. Don't worry about it, God. I got this one covered. Ever had that attitude? See, that's what Joshua's attitude was when he went went to Ai. Oh, he was swelled up like a big blowfish. You ever seen the blowfish? I used to go out on the jetties in Galveston, and there was this fish. He wasn't all that big, but when you caught him, he would blow up like a big balloon. We used to bounce him off the jetties. <laughs> you know, it was one of their defense mechanisms. And that's what we're like sometimes. We get a little spiritual victory. We get a little something going our way, and we just swell up like a big blowfish, and we think, oh, God, don't bother. I got this in handle. I got it covered. Don't worry about it. <laughs> What I'm telling you is that is a very dangerous attitude. And, you know, we think we got everything under control. You know what you got under control? That's right. I see a lot of heads going like this. When you think you have things under control, you are in big time trouble. Even on the little things. Some people say, well, I'll go to God when it's a crisis, when it really gets to be big and really important, I'll go to God. No. You go to God on the little bitty things even. You can, it's impossible. Listen to this. It's impossible to bother God with your problems. In fact, He tells us, give me your burden. I want it. And don't wait until you're tied to the train and it's bearing down on you. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. I guess the younger ones don't. What was the guy's name? Yeah, t- train track. There you go. Thank you. The train track. Uh, what was uh, the guy that always twisted his... Luther? What was his name? Oh, well, I'm digressing. Uh, it means a lot more, though. That, that Huh? Yeah, that's it, that's it. Snidely whiplash. <laughs> and you'd have the girl tied to the, to the train track, and, the, and here comes the train. I used to go to Garden Oaks Theater and watch these movies like this. And here comes the train bearing down, and they're right there. And she goes, oh. And uh, then they would cut and say, to be continued. <laughs> we're not to wait till we're tied to the train track and the train is bearing down on us because we're not in control after all are we on even the little things we are to go to the lord and depend upon him that's what he wants us to do and when you don't you see this is what joshua is telling us this is a historical account and it's not oh well it's a nice bible story no it's trying to teach us something an attitude that I got it, I got this covered. You don't have anything covered. Do not fear or be dismayed. This phrase is found in Deuteronomy 3.18, Joshua 1.9, Joshua 10.8. You know it's used over 70 times in the Bible. Do not fear or be dismayed. Fear will rob you of your happiness. Being dismayed is... Dread of things yet to come. There's something else we need to take from this. Already in the first verse. I said things were back on track. Remember this. Israel richly deserved to be defeated at Ai. They had an arrogant attitude. God body slammed them. He got their attention. And now they're depending on him again. And now he's saying, I'm going to give you AI. Don't fear or be dismayed. God is telling us, I've got it covered. Here's the thing I want you to see. God does not hold grudges. He doesn't 
You know, we, we tend to pout sometimes and hold grudges. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past, doesn't matter what you what's all of us, listen, would rather keep a lid on some of the things we've done in the past, don't we? Oh, y'all are sitting there so pious looking. And humanly speaking, people will hold you accountable from now on. They'll hold grudges against you. They'll try to keep you down. Once, once you're right with God, forgive the past. Paul said, I'm leaving behind, leaving all that behind, and I'm moving on to the prize. And that's God's attitude. He wants us to realize that He's not going to make them pay. He's not going to continually hold them down, hold them accountable, or anything else. They're right with Him now because they were humble and they obeyed Him. He did what they said that, that He told them to do. And now He's saying, okay, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I'm going to give you the city. We're back on track. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad that God doesn't have a clipboard? That He goes around with a clipboard and, uh-uh, see that one? That's going to, you have to work this one off. Now that's going to really hold you back. Our relationship will never be the same now because look what you did. That's not our God. Listen, Israel did things that would embarrass hell. And yet, God is ready right now. They're humble. He forgives them. He's on track. Now, let's get with it. I'm in control. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you AI. Aren't you glad that God doesn't hold a grudge against you? Do not be dismayed. When we, when we make a mess of things, but then acknowledge it and humbly seek His guidance. Guess what? Who's on our side? God's in our side. And what is He telling us? Okay, now we're on track. Don't be afraid. I've got it covered. If you want to fear anything, fear me. Outside of that, i got it covered. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we see even in the first verse here. You know, it's true that in our lives we cannot avoid issues that overcome us and cause anxiety, fear, and frustration. We can't move forward in our spiritual life until we figure out what the problem is and deal with the issue. But what this is what I guess what I'm trying to tell you. I'm going to end on this right here. God is more interested in your attitude than whatever the issues were. If you're humble towards Him, you're seeking Him, you're ready to obey Him, that's what's important to Him. Not the issues, not all the other things that's happened. And this is the last word in today's message, the last thing I'm going to address. They were decisively defeated in Ai. But they humbled themselves to God, and now God is going to turn defeat into victory. Would you like that in your life? Whatever defeats you have in your past, this is an acknowledgement from the Word of God that God is in the business of turning defeat into victory. That's one reason He gets the glory. We'll never do it trusting ourselves. We'll never do it thinking with the attitude, i got this covered. I'd like everyone please to bow your heads. The reason I ask you to do that is for privacy. I've talked about fathers today. I've talked about loyalty to family. I've talked about God being able to turn defeat into victory. All these are very important issues. But the most important issue that any of us face is what think ye of Christ. He is either who he says he is or he's the biggest liar of all time. He claims that he is the Son of God, that he went to the cross, pay for your sins. He died, was buried, and was resurrected. And now he offers eternal life to anyone who will trust him and him alone for it. Now the reason I have you bow your heads is because I want everyone to be thinking about that. If you've already made that decision, then you should have 
a mental attitude of appreciation and prayer for those who have not made that decision to trust in Jesus Christ and believe what he says and who he is. Eternal life is a gift given on the basis of faith. Anyone can do it at any time. This would be a good time if you haven't done it. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You make the decision in your own soul to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you receive the gift of eternal life. Father, we're so thankful for your mighty word. We have so many things in our lives that need correcting. Our biggest enemy is our own arrogance. We pray that you will help us to be humble, to seek you out in all things, and to trust you and recognize that the battle is yours and that you give victory over defeat. We thank you for these things. Pray that you will help us to meditate upon them. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name.